If you have a Bible, please turn to me to John chapter 14. And if you don't have one, there should be one in the chair in front of you. John chapter 14. And before we start in reading, Nathaniel, come here, dude. This is your last Sunday, right? Come here. This is uh, Nathaniel. I've known you four years. I still don't know how to say your last name. Shermet. Shermet. Can you say it one more time? Shermet. Shermet. Nathaniel is, uh, has graduated and is headed to the service, and all your beautiful piano playing is going with you. Thank you for your service, brother. Thank you. Oh, yeah, don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere yet. He, did, he didn't know I was bringing him up here. Um, no, you can't go anywhere. Uh, I just want to point out that Nathaniel has been really a model college student. He's been engaged in the life of the church. He's been regularly involved. He's made a formal commitment. He's used the gifts that God's given him musically to serve. And uh, we're blessed as a church to be positioned geographically where we are such that God brings us people like him on a short-term basis. So we're thankful for you, and uh, our prayers will go with you. Shermit. <laughs> Sit down, Shermit. So John... Uh, John 14, we're, we're exploring together weekly through one of the sections of Scripture that describes what happened the night that Jesus was arrested. And John in particular, among all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, focuses a lot of energy, a lot of data around what Jesus said to his disciples in that final evening before he was to be arrested John 13 to 17 is what we're spending the summer on together, and this is some of the most precious material in the entire Bible, because we get to, to peer right into the very heart of Jesus. And our, um, our passage today, and this sermon in particular, are going to require some thinking. So I realize it's a holiday weekend, it's beautiful outside, um, but you're here. So I'm going to need you to hang with me. And we'll require um, your thinking cap. So can you, can you put that on? Ready? Good job. All right. So the Bible is given to us not so that we would get smarter. It's, it's not for us to learn facts that we can sound more spiritual than somebody else. It's not abstract truth that's only useful in the next life. The Bible's given that we might know the truth and thus have confident hope in Christ today. It's given that we would be equipped for every good work that God would set before us. It's given that we would know God and then share his word with other people. And the topic we come to today is one of the most challenging, perhaps in the whole Bible, for us today at this geographical place and this moment in time. Last week, we said that the world is full of trouble. God's aim this side of heaven, we learned, is not to eradicate those troubles, but to transform our lives so dramatically that we could walk joyfully through troubles. Instead of demanding that our troubles evaporate, Jesus told us to believe God the Father and to believe God the Son, to place all our trust and confidence in Him. Today, we're going to read that same passage and then bridge into the next idea. So look with me at John 14. I'll start in verse 1. 
Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It is very commonly held today that there are many paths to heaven. And the reasoning goes something like this. If, if all truth is relative, then there cannot be only one way to God. Because if you sincerely have your truth and I have mine and we're both right, then as long as you sincerely hold to a truth, that's good enough. Because there's no permanently fixed, absolute, universal truth, especially when it comes to religion. There's only personal preference. So like you like chocolate ice cream, and some of you like strawberry ice cream, and some of you like vanilla ice cream, we all have our version of truth. It's simply personal preference. Those of you in the room today who are Christians and who share your faith with any degree of regularity, you have undoubtedly heard someone say something like, I'm glad you found something that works for you, but that's not for me. There's two dominant metaphors used to assert this point in literature today. Uh, I'll briefly recount both of them for you. You've likely heard them. One of them describes different religions like different paths going up different sides of the same mountain. And as long as you climb a path and you make it to the top, then everything's fine. One philosopher describes it like this. It'll be on the screens. It's possible to climb life's mountain from any side, but when the top is reached, the trails converge. At base, in the foothills of theology and ritual and organizational structure, religions are distinct. Differences in culture, history, geography, and collective temperament all make for diverse starting points. But beyond these differences, the same goal beckons. So just pick a path, and as long as you're on a path, you'll make it to the top. Another illustration often used is that of an elephant. Maybe you've heard it. Four blind men come across an elephant. Now, I don't know in what setting. That's kind of strange. But they come across an, element, an elephant, and... They each touch a different part of the elephant. One touches the elephant's belly and says, the elephant is like a wall. Another touches the elephant's tail and says, no, no, no. It's not like a wall at all. It's like a snake. Another touches an elephant's leg and says, it's, it's like a tree trunk. And finally, one touches the elephant's hind end and says, no, it's like a humid cave. Come on, that's funny. All of the blind men, the illustration is meant to demonstrate, get a part of the elephant right, but none of them get the whole because they don't see the whole elephant. So it is with, I heard that. So it is with religion. We're all seeing a part of the truth, but none of us get the whole picture. 
These two metaphors are used extensively in literature to assert that as long as you sincerely believe something, that's good enough. John Hick, in the book God Has Many Names, says this, in the light of our accumulated knowledge of the other great world faiths, and he's talking about Christian exclusivity, the idea that Jesus is the way to God and there isn't another way. In light of that, in light of the great world faiths, only that has become unacceptable to all a minority of dogmatic diehards, for it's in conflict with our concept of God, which we've received from Jesus as the loving Heavenly Father of all mankind. Could such a being have restricted the possibility of salvation to those who happen to have been born in certain countries in certain periods of time? Do you hear what he's saying? Hick appeals to Jesus to say there are many paths to heaven. So he's using Jesus himself to say there's many ways to God. But if John 14 is true, then Jesus himself says something different. Jesus says he is the way to a restored relationship with God. Now understand, uh, I've struggled personally with what we'll talk about today. Maybe you have too. Maybe you have the perspective that John has. John Hick, not the gospel writer John. You're welcome here even if you disagree. You're welcome here even if you have questions. If you've perhaps temporarily reached a different conclusion. But at the end of the day, the issue isn't what does John Hick say or what does Chuck say or what do you say. The issue is what does Jesus say? What does Jesus himself say? And should we take him at his word? Well, the Bible presents that Jesus is the path to a restored relationship with God. We've clearly seen it in the passage we already read today. But maybe that's just an isolated text. Let me read a few other passages. They'll be on the screen. All of us have heard John 3.16. If you've ever seen a football game, you've read John 3.16. Here's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's great news, isn't it? That is the message of the gospel, that if you'll believe in Christ, you can have eternal life. But have you ever read the rest of the passage? Here's what it goes on to say, verse 17. For God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. In the same paragraph, John tells us Jesus is the way to eternal life. And the whole world can come, whoever will believe. But then he goes on to say, if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're already condemned. But maybe that's just John. Maybe it's just one of the people who was really close to Jesus and he sort of got mesmerized by Christ and forgot there's lots of other people who've never heard. But the next book in the Bible, Acts, Acts 4, a different author says this, Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men 
by which they must be saved. The message of the Bible is very clear. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Now, what might surprise us today is that that was no more culturally acceptable in Jesus' day than it was ours. In fact, it was asinine that someone would say, I am God, and if you'll believe in me, then you can be right with the Father. It's easy, and I often hear people do this, to talk about John 14 in sort of an angry, authoritarian, dictatorial demeanor where they're kind of screaming, and they imagine Jesus pointing the finger. But that's not at all the tone of the passage. See, Jesus didn't say to Thomas when Thomas had questions, Thomas, you're an idiot. You're stupid. I've already told you I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That that wasn't what he did. The tone is much more, Thomas, be encouraged. There is a way to the Father. You can know God. You don't have to wonder and struggle and question and doubt. It's crystal clear. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Disciples, there is a way. You really can be forgiven and know the love of God. I am the way. It's through me you can come to the Father. To go back to our analogy earlier, That doesn't sound anything like the mountain or the elephant. So we've said that one of the questions we need to ask is what does Jesus himself say? And it's it's pretty clear, honestly. Jesus says there's a way to the Father and it is through him. But now we need to ask, should we take that seriously? And is that different than what any other religion has said? Maybe all religions are the same. But when analyzed closely, we find that different spiritual paths advocate drastically different spiritual solutions. Are you still with me? All right, why don't we stretch? This is hard stuff. I'm not joking. Come on, you can do it. I won't make you stand and rub the shoulders of the person next to you. That's creepy and weird. All right? Friends, if, if you actually look and analyze what the different faiths teach, they're not the same. They're simply not the same. Islam, for example, says Christ was a good teacher and a prophet. Christianity says that, but it says more. It says he's God who became man, died for our sins, and rose again. Judaism says we're still waiting for the Messiah. Christianity says the Messiah came 2,000 years ago. Taoism says everyone must find their own path to enlightenment. Christianity says Jesus is the light of the world, and we can only see through him. Buddhism says we're reincarnated over and over and over. Jesus says it's appointed that we would die once, and after that comes judgment. Friends, it's... It's dishonest and disingenuous to push all those differences aside and say they're all the same because they're not. A far better solution is to honestly say there are differences and which one seems to be the most consistent with reality. 
I understand how culturally conflicted this causes us to be. John 14 is one of the most controversial chapters in the entire Bible. But don't be fooled by the person that says there is no single truth. All paths are ultimately the same, and you're bigoted, backwards, confused, and dumb if you say otherwise. Because, friends, that claim is just as exclusive as the claim that says Jesus is the only way. They're both exclusive. The question is, which one's right? Which one should we believe? Christianity's exclusivity is an inclusive exclusivity. Say that 10 times fast. Christianity's exclusivity is an inclusive exclusivity. Let me try to explain what I mean by this. The position of the Bible, the position of Christianity, is not that a few especially wealthy, Western-born, educated, well-behaved people get into heaven when they die. That's not actually what the Bible says at all. It says quite the opposite. And the faith began in the East and came to the West. The Bible teaches that all people have a fundamental problem. We turn good things into ultimate things. All of us. We worship what God has made instead of God himself. And that's an affront to our creator. In the language of the scriptures, that's idolatry. It's sin. But God entered history to provide a solution. That's love. Isn't that amazing? God chose to intervene. Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a sinless life, died as our substitute, and rose again in victory over sin. And the Bible says that all who come to Jesus can have eternal life. Notice I said all. All. It's incredibly inclusive. Radically inclusive. Anyone is welcome. It doesn't matter how good or how bad you've been. It doesn't matter what color your skin is or how educated you are or if you've ever been taken advantage of sexually or if you're someone who's taken advantage of somebody sexually. It says, anyone's welcome. Young, old, married, single, man, woman, wealthy, poor, extrovert, introvert, all are welcome. The door is wide open. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Come to God so you can be right with him. His arms were nailed open for you to come. That is what Christianity says. John 14 is written to include, not to exclude. God in his grace has disclosed exactly how this works, and he says all are welcome. So far from excluding people, Christianity says everyone can come. There is a way to God. Now, when we understand this, are you still with me? This is a hard topic. This is a truth that humbles. You see, if you really understand it, then you know there's simply no room for pride and arrogance. There's no room to get angry that someone would disagree with you. Many think today that it's arrogant to say that we know the truth. And even Christians at times feel like it's rude and judgmental and harsh to say, no, it's only through Jesus. But if you feel arrogant about that, then you've misunderstood how this worked for you. 
You've overestimated yourself. You see, if you're a Christian, you're not a Christian because you're smarter or more clever than anybody else. It's not because you're more superior. We don't know the truth because we're better or because we're a little higher breed. Friends, knowing the truth doesn't work that way. Scripture says that every human being has a darkened mind, that our our choices blind us to the truth. And so God must take the initiative through which we can know him. In other words, if you know God today, it's because God revealed himself to you. And when you get that, then how could we ever be harsh or judgmental or arrogant towards somebody who disagrees? Christianity is not the message that what we've done has made us right with God, but that what God has done has made us right with God. There's a huge difference. Now, in some ways, everything I've said so far was the introduction. Don't panic. I won't keep you here forever. Here's the question. So, how do we evaluate a religious claim to truth? How do we decide if these faiths actually claim different things? Then which one's right? How do we know if Christianity is true or not? Well, God has not left that to personal preference and subjective experience. You see, the question actually is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Was he resurrected? Jesus claimed not just that there is a way, but that he is the way. He is the truth. If we heard it in the way that he said it in the first century, we would have said that's audacious. We all would have struggled with it. We all would have had an immediate skepticism because that's a ridiculous claim to make. God became man, lived a perfect life, died a sacrifice, and then rose again? That's crazy talk. But here's the thing. If the resurrection is true, then it proves that everything Jesus said is true because the resurrection demonstrates it to be so. And it serves as the preview of what's to come for all believers. To say it more directly, Muhammad is dead. Buddha's dead. Joseph Smith is dead. But Jesus claims to be alive. And the Bible's position is not, if you struggle with that, well, just close your eyes and pray harder. Just believe. Just pray for some subjective experience and feeling to wave over you. That's not exactly the way it works. That's not what God says at all. He says that God acted in time and space, that he physically rose from the dead, and that that's the proof, that it's true. The Bible says, look at the evidence. The way we talk about Christianity today is often not any sort of Christianity at all. It's something far less. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. One other passage I'd love for you to turn to, and if your Bible doesn't just fall open there, then you're not reading that passage often enough. It's that important of a text. So 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to read a big chunk of it. 1 Corinthians 15. You're asleep or lazy, because I don't hear many pages turning. Grab a Bible and turn there, please. This is a passage 
you need to wrestle with. 1 Corinthians 15. All right, now, we've just fast-forwarded 16, 17, 18 years after Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And one of the last people on the planet who would ever have said, yeah, I believe that, was a guy named Paul. And here's what he wrote. Verse 3 of chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. That will become important. We'll come back to that. Though some have fallen asleep, not like you, they died. For he appeared to James and then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now jump down to verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because, we're testif- because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. If Christ, if... Uh, he could have said it a little more succinctly. Verse 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says it all rests on did the resurrection actually happen? If the resurrection happened, if the tomb is empty, if hundreds of people saw him, then it's true. And if none of that happened, then you're a fool. Then you're wasting your Sunday morning. You ought to still be in bed. That's what he's saying. And notice that he didn't say, you struggle with this, you have questions about it, you find it hard to believe, then just pray harder. That's not what he said. He said, get on your horse and go to Jerusalem. There's still lots of people alive who saw Jesus themselves. Talk to them. Interview them. Ask them what they saw. If Jesus rose again, then Christianity is true. If Jesus did not rise again, then it's a lie. A recent book out by a guy named Greg Gilbert put it this way. The resurrection is the hinge on which all of Christianity turns. It's the foundation on which everything else rests, the capstone that holds everything else about Christianity together, which means crucially that when Christians assert that Jesus rose from the dead, they're making a historical claim, not a religious one. Jesus, yes, of course, there are religious implications to that claim, if you want to call them that, but none of those are in the least valid if Jesus didn't really, truly, historically come back to life from the dead. That's what Paul is saying. 
Isn't that helpful? Jill, would you hand me that little red book? We love to give away books here. This is little, you see? That's a quote from this book. And uh, our friends at Nine Marks are doing something really cool. You know in Starbucks, when you go in, they have the little free song of the day? Uh, the folks at Nine Marks have created um, an ebook where you can carry some of these around in your wallet or purse and give them away to somebody who's interested and they can download the little book for free. I would like to give this book away to someone who has a friend that isn't a believer and you would be willing to engage them by giving them the card and trying to talk to them about faith. Christine, you were by far the most exuberant. Come on up. Perfect. She said thank you. There are some more of those in the back, um, just available at cost at the bookstall. I'd encourage you to get one. Paul says, go talk to the people. Go see them. Go ask them questions. Share your doubts with them. Ask them what made them so sure that he was dead and now that he's alive. But wait, 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 wait. Here was my question. That's nice, Paul, but all those people are dead. I can't talk to any of them. So why should I take you at your word? How am I so supposed to decide if those eyewitnesses are gone? A typical American church answer to that would be to turn to your feelings. You decide what's right for you. Does believing in God seem to help? Does it make you feel better? Does a back from the dead Jesus make your life more happy? Does this idea that Christianity is true seem to make life more smooth for you? If so, then believe it. If not, then try something else. But friends, that's dangerous and harmful. That's not what Paul would say if he were here. If Paul were here, he would tell us, look at the Bible. Those are your eyewitnesses. There's your truth. It records eyewitness testimony. Jesus said it. Study his words. Listen to his claims. And then look at all the historical record outside the Bible. Is there a better explanation than that what the Bible claims is actually true. That's what you have to decide for yourself. You don't, you don't look inward, you look outward. Because Christianity doesn't claim to first of all be a subjective internal experience. It claims to be an external historical fact that then demands I submit to God and live differently. Christianity isn't based, first of all, on your feelings. Those change with what you ate and how much you slept last night. It's rooted in facts that claim to be truthful. And if they're not, it doesn't make any difference what you feel about it. 
W.H. Alden was one of the great writers of the 1900s, and he went from being a staunch atheist to being a Christian. One of his friends wrote him and asked him, why in the world are you turning to Christianity? And here's what he replied. I believe because he, Jesus, fulfills none of my dreams. Because he's in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him into my own image. Friends, no one in Jesus' day was looking for a savior who would die in our place and then come back from the dead and claim not just to be Savior, but to be Lord. There was not a person on the planet looking for that. You see, the Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus of our making. Auden understood what Jesus was claiming when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, Auden's saying, when I read the Bible, I see no one would have made up a savior like this. He doesn't claim to know a way, but to be the way. He contradicts everything I want. He defies my desires and expectations. I want a Jesus I can rub his belly and get my three wishes. I want a Jesus who gives me money and power and health. But this Jesus doesn't do that. He's real. He rose from the dead. He's Lord. And he demands control of my entire life. This Jesus is actually a threat to me. Because if the resurrection is true, then it means I must believe him and I must center my life around him. He must become the blazing center of everything about me. That's what Alden's saying. And that's what Jesus was saying. The witness of the Bible in an endless number of historical realities tell us this is the truth. Jesus rose. He died in our place and the resurrection proves that what he said is true. I believe, Alden's saying. So what about you? Do you believe? Let's pray.